Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This episode is with Charlotte Pickles, the director of the Reform Think Tank, and it is an absolute cracker. Charlotte cares deeply about public services, and this shines through during the entire interview. I'd like to spend more time on the podcast talking to leaders of think tanks because they play a very important role in our policy system. The ideas that end up featuring in political party manifestos don't just materialise from thin air. So it's important that public servants understand how think tanks influence and indeed understand how they can influence think tanks. So in this particular episode, Charlie and I talk about health and care reform. And there's a very interesting discussion around a more radical devolution of health and care budgets and responsibility. We also talk about the machinery of government, particularly in central government and attitudes to risk and how can we get government thinking more long term. And I also asked Charlie to help public servants understand exactly what this government is trying to achieve and how they should interpret that. So there's tons more as well, but rather than me go through it all now, let's get over and hear from Charlie. Charlie, it's great to have you on the podcast. Um, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I, uh, I'm delighted that we're basically out of the kind of you know lockdown restrictions being able to be in seeing people high energy uh yeah it's it's good it's good it it is nice isn't it to be back to some sort of normality we're we're back into our office about three days a week now and it's just so nice to not be at home all the time so and actually doing face-to-face meetings and events and oh i love it I love Good. Things. Excellent. Excellent. So look, we, we know each other quite well now, but for people who are listening who don't, can you just say a little bit about who you are? Sure. So I'm, I'm one of those people that, that uh, well, I hope I, I, a lot of people say I look younger than I am, but I've actually done sort of 10 different roles uh, already. So I'll give you the, um, the kind of short summary. So I started my think tank career at the Centre for Social Justice, uh, which um I joined before the 2010 election and so was involved in all the work that was done around um, Breakthrough Britain, uh, which feeded into then obviously the Cameron years and the five pathways to poverty and that kind of stuff. So that that was where I guess I, I sort of dipped my toe in the kind of policy environment and, and loved it. I then went into government. I had um, I was very privileged to be able to go in when um, Ian Duncan Smith got made Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. Uh, so I spent a, a couple of years uh, in the coalition um, as a, an advisor to Ian, working on all things welfare reform, which was both brilliant and stressful, but also incredibly valuable when you're a policymaker in actually going, oh, there's quite a lot of implementation challenges when you need to think yeah. about policy. 
I've done stuff advising a, a West, Midlands, West Midlands police force. I spent some time in a consultancy in um, their public sector practice. I am currently at Reform, uh, where I'm director, and we focus on a think tank focusing on public services. But I also, before I actually came back to Reform, um, this is my second stint, I uh, was managing editor of the comment and current affairs site Unheard. So I've I don't quite want to say I've dabbled in journalism. I think that's far too grand a thing to say, but I've, I've sort of, again, dipped my toe in that. Yeah. No, I like Unheard. I think when we first met, we talked about that. It's a really good site. And just interesting, your time in government. I think the universal credit reforms are one of the things that have been tested during the pandemic and, and actually you've done pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And I mean, it was a pretty brutal period trying to get that program up and running and you know a lot of your listeners will be more than familiar with the um the the kind of hurdles and the challenges along the way and you know you want to talk about implementing a major change program there's probably not not a better example to look at but it also shows I think that perseverance um and getting the right people together having the right scrutiny processes um you know designing the program very much with users in mind can end up with something which is incredibly resilient. And that's what we saw during the the pandemic. And interestingly, actually, I was having a a conversation with someone earlier today uh, who advises on, on, I guess, kind of big major change and and digital, you know, technology-enabled major change programs uh, in other countries as well. And he said, you look at Universal Credit and what they did in terms of making sure it was robust for the volumes going through in the pandemic, and he said, compared to almost every other country, we should be incredibly proud with how that performed. And, yeah, there's, there's lots of challenges and, and people have got still got lots of criticisms. And some of those, I think, are correct and some aren't. But just for a, a, a major programme that that if we hadn't had in place, you know, yeah. if we were relying on those legacy benefit systems, goodness knows what state people would have it, been. It could have been a bit of a mess. And I think it's it's a real example of the benefit of having a policy idea and sticking to it and through the thick and thin, because it feels, I'll be honest here, it feels a little bit like the policy agenda and ideas are coming out of government every five minutes to, you know, and it, it, the stickability that's needed to get something like that through isn't obvious to me at the minute, but I won't ask you to comment on that. So look, let's talk about reform, your current role as director of reform. So who are reform and how did it all start there? Reform are one of the classic kind of Westminster think tanks, which um, uh, I guess in the current context, and again, probably partly rightly, uh, it, it, it maybe shows some of the kind of narrower focus that think tanks actually historically have had, which has been much more on central government. We were talking about this earlier. Um, it was set up, gosh, about 20 years ago by um, Nick Herbert, a probably a familiar name to a lot of yeah. your, your listeners, former yeah. MP, now I think Lord Minister. Herbert. Exactly. Um, and and someone called Andrew Holdenby. Um, and it, it, it sort of it had it's had quite an interesting evolution. I think it's probably quite a well, I find it quite a fascinating insight into, I suppose, um, how think tanks develop and the relevance of them at any point. But it started off as much more a campaign organisation. So we, it was set up in the um, heyday of the Blair years uh, when money was no object. We were seeing huge amounts being spent on public services and you know, some really positive outcomes. And we could spend a whole podcast talking about the Blair, Blair reforms. But one of the observations that both Nick and Andrew had at the time was that um, you can't just throw money at a problem. And when you're spending taxpayers' money, you probably also need to think about should reform be done at the same time? Actually, yeah. is there inefficiencies in the system. And so you're putting more money in, but are you really getting a value for money outcome from that additional cash? And so they were... I guess the first people really who were who started talking about spending, well, actually spending less, but more an an agenda of value for money. And we went into then had various iterations, went in then to obviously the financial crash in 2008. And that few years post crash, um, where obviously we had austerity, I guess reform really came to the fore because all of its back capital catalogue was about more for less it was all about how you could get more from uh, either the money you had or actually being able to spend less for better outcomes and so it became really really relevant and you'll see this with think tanks you know the kind of ebb and flow of of relevance at any given 
time. Um, and so that kind of period, those few years after the coalition, that was very much the focus, loads going on, lots of ideas about how to uh, transform public services, take cost out, increase efficiency, um, but also think about those outcomes we're trying to achieve. And then obviously things shifted. You know, we had Brexit and what seemed like an election almost every year and slight political chaos, much much like we have today, uh, but probably better, less uh, said on that. Um, and I suppose reform then got more into thinking about, for example, what's the, the role of technology and data in transforming public services? So much more kind of thematic in that sense. You know, we did a lot of work on procurement and how you could actually improve procurement, things like social value, which, again, will be um, very familiar to your to your listeners. Um, and I took it over when Andrew stepped down uh, kind of early summer 2019. So perfect timing just before the pandemic hit. Yeah. Um, and and now we're actually rethinking i guess about okay what does what does public service reform mean today and how do we need to look at it and our thinking now has shifted uh, still very much we care about value for money sound public finances all those good things that we should care about but it's more about saying what are the big kind of long-term challenges facing the country that perhaps we're still thinking too much in a tweaking mindset rather than a radical reform mindset and so that's where we've got to now Interesting. It's not an easy case to make these days, spending money wisely rather than just spending more. <laughs> you might very well say that. Um, <laughs> uh, do you know what? I mean, I think that is true to a degree. But I mean, we heard from the chancellor, was it in the budget? And I think probably then again in the spending review that he wants to see a much greater focus on evidence to show that programs work. Uh, and so money is being spent to good effect. Um, we've seen this new efficiency task force uh, is being set up. The NHS, which we'll probably come on to because that's going to be a big yeah. focus for us, has been has had its target for efficiency doubled. So actually, it's not publicly popular to talk about it. But it's happening. But it is happening. And, 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 you know, we I think we we don't have perhaps the burning platform we had back in 2010 for thinking about this. But actually, you look at the impact of, of inflation on those spending envelopes uh, that were set for the spending review. And they are looking an awfully lot tighter than they did a few months ago. And so yeah. people are just going to have to be thinking now about how to do more. Well, uh, I, I certainly know for a fact, speaking to public service leaders in councils and in central government and and within the NHS. Nobody wants to be wasting money. You know, they want to spend it wisely. And I think the narrative around this just gets oversimplified in a very unhelpful way in the press quite a lot. I think that's exactly right. And and you know what? I mean, there are, you know, there are examples of just waste and we should, you know, we should be incredibly uh, vigilant in, in, in tackling those and cutting them out. But, you know, a lot of the waste actually comes from the design of the system itself. So, you know, the fact that we have siloed budgets, the fact that actually, you know, local government, for example, want to do something, but they don't have the levers and the mechanisms because actually it's not devolved to them. You know, quite a lot of the problems are inbuilt. You know, how do you do get the economies of scale in, in technological change? I mean, policing is a great example here, you know, with with whatever it is, 43 forces, all buying their own things, doing their own things. You know, how do you create systems and structures that are uh, enabling of value for money rather than sometimes actually counterproductive to that? Yeah, we actually did a piece of work for two police forces in combining their procurement services in, into a uh, one organization. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Tons of efficiencies there and elsewhere also. So I, I want to come back later to just to talk about how you engage with with public servants or influence them or try to influence them. But before I do that, I want to ask you about what the big policy areas that you're focusing on are. So what are they? <laughs> well, I am super excited, actually. Um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big nerd, a big kind of policy geek anyway, but I'm really excited with the stuff that we have got to do. Um, so our, our first big area, uh, we've got two buckets, if you like, of work we're going to be doing. One is health, and I'm deliberately saying health and not the NHS. Um, and our second bucket is kind of machinery of government. Um, so on the first, I mean, the pandemic has been 
obviously both devastating but really fascinating to see how um well actually all of government at, at central local you know public sector has responded but i guess in health in particular because it, it's been at the you know the very forefront of the response it's exposed some of the weaknesses some of the um challenges that perhaps we've previously slightly being able to brush under the carpet and muddle along um so you think about waiting lists for example uh and we're we're well above six million on waiting lists now we now have a new category for measuring waiting more than two years i mean you know this is this is a form of rationing healthcare uh at that point we're talking about that incessantly now and yet if you go to pre-pandemic there were already over four million people on waiting lists but we just didn't really talk about it so So we got to thinking, how well is both our health service operating and the social care system as well? But also more broadly, if you were going to sit down and say, how do you maximise the health of the nation? What would you come up with? And that's the amazing thing about working in a think tank is that you can ask those bigger sort of um, really exciting questions because you can start with a blank slate. So so what do I mean by that? So. I think there's a few things. What, what essentially we've we've come to the, the I guess the analysis or our kind of problem diagnosis is that we know the health care system, health and social care system uh, currently is not sustainable in terms of affordability. So by 2025, what is it? I think 44% of all day to day public spending is going to go on the NHS. Um, And there was a great, great line in The Economist a while back that said, effectively, if you project forward, um, our state is going to become the NHS with nukes. And that's going to be essentially going to be what we and and, and sadly, that is the direction that we are going in, because the NHS is sucking more and more money into it. And if you have finite resources and we can have a debate separately about that, um, that means you have to take money elsewhere. And we've seen what's happened to local government. We've seen what's happened to skills We've you know, all those other areas. So it's not affordable in the long term in its current state. It's also and, you know, it's a difficult thing to say, but we should be honest and we should look at the evidence. It's also not performing brilliantly uh, on certain metrics. If you look internationally, you know, cancer survival rates, for example, are some of the worst in the OECD uh, in our country and survival from cardiac uh, diseases, things like that. We, we don't perform well. And if you look at metrics generally of the population's health, you think about obesity, you think about mental health. These are all going in the wrong direction. And yet we've never spent more and we're not getting the results we want. And anyone who's interested in policy and is interested in outcomes should want to ask the question, well, should we be doing things differently? Yeah. Um, and so our programme of work, and I would love uh, your listeners who've got an interest in this, maybe work in, in health in some way or in local government or an area that contributes to health, um, to get in touch because we want to talk to as many people as possible about this. But should we be having a conversation about what a radical devolution of some of the parts of the healthcare system are? Yeah. Because that's how you then can have a conversation about trade-offs uh, and investment. So actually, yeah. it would be better we spent an extra pound um, on early years care, on uh, more cleaner, safer communities than another pound on the health service. Because we know that 20%, only 20% of health outcomes are anything to do with health care itself and that, local governments are most levers. Well, yes, and I was going to make that point, actually. The wider determinants of health are not controlled by the NHS in any way, shape or form, usually. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think part of the problem is that we are, we accept that the social determinants are incredibly important. And, you know, we are thankfully having a real debate at the moment about health inequalities which is another area where we have seen a decline in outcomes for example on on healthy life expectancy but the default then becomes well the nhs needs to solve that so Mm. i know let's do social prescribing which to me and and this will you know i'm sure be uh, will offend some some people but it seems a bit absurd to say go to your gp to get social prescribing so go to a highly trained fairly costly clinician for them to then tell you oh well maybe you should do some exercise or maybe you need to be part of a community group because actually that would really help with your mental health and your physical health why wouldn't we have structures in place 
that are about supporting healthy communities rather than saying any problem, any ailment, any issue, go and see a healthcare professional. That that just seems to me, I mean, we talk about efficiency and value for money. I mean, that's a great example where we're taking a really costly model when we could be far more creative. We could get communities owning these kind of topics, local government involved. You know, there's so much potential. And yet we default to saying, well, the NHS can solve it. And, and it can't. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And there are some examples around the country with particularly primary care networks having a bit more autonomy about what they do and maybe being able to hire some some additional staff and things where they are trying to not have everybody need to see a GP all, all the time, because exactly as you say, this is a highly trained, very expensive resource. And there are things also popping up, up like family hubs and that kind of thing where it's a more integrated service and you can get that help from a range of professionals within that that same grouping. But I, I must say, I am very interested in the idea of increased evolution in health. I can only imagine it would be an extremely difficult thing to get pushed through because of you would then have things like postcode lotteries and, you know, different systems would absolutely perform differently. Um, but then I guess, you know, different systems perform differently in terms of schooling, in terms of, you know, different areas. You know, so health health is just one example. And it, it seems to be the one bit which is not it isn't properly integrated into the whole leveling up conversation. You know, the government is making funding decisions to support some areas ahead of others for all sorts of important things around local economy, investment in, in infrastructure. But there's a real nervousness about doing anything like that around health because different parts of the country have different health inequalities. But yet the kind of principle is that everybody should get exactly the same. And that's going to be quite a hard thing to change, I would have thought. It is. And I, <clears throat> I certainly wouldn't sit here and, and say that we've we've picked an easy topic. Um, in fact, I think we've, we've probably gone it's to very hard. brave. Very, if, you, if you were a minister, I'd be telling you that you were very <laughs> brave to take on this topic. Well, and again, you know, coming back to think tanks, I sort of, you know, I actually, I mean, I both think it's really important, but I also think it's kind of our responsibility to be asking these more challenging or more controversial questions because a minister's never really going to be able to stand up and say, should we, re, you know, should we rethink how we approach health in this country? Um, but actually, we can do that and therefore we should do it because it's really important that we have open discussion. And look, the answer in the end might be, do you know what? We've got the NHS uh, as it is for a reason. Lots of people have tried to restructure it. Lots of people have tried to change it. And it always comes back to kind of, you know, a fairly top down model. Um, I don't think that is the answer. But the point is, it shouldn't be off limits to have the conversation yeah. about it. And, you know, you're, you're spot on about the fact that there are so many people out in communities wanting to innovate and wanting the opportunity to do things in a different way and having ideas about how they would do that and recognising actually that, you know, central dictacs from NHS England saying every GP surgery has to do X, Y and Z can often mean then that those surgeries have to deprioritise things which would be more impactful in those areas because they know their local populations better than someone sitting in Whitehall would do. And that's a criticism of the person sitting in Whitehall. I'm sure they think they're doing the best thing, but they can't possibly understand what would be best in, you know, this ward or this city or whatever it might be. Um, and that's where I think moving away from this idea that, that of a postcode lottery and celebrating the fact that postcodes are different, they have different needs, and therefore wouldn't it be a good thing if actually the services that are developed and designed for those different postcodes yeah. are actually appropriate to I what local people in those areas want? I think you're right, and certainly from my experience, the really good civil servants know that they do not have the answer to everything. They know the limitation of their knowledge local knowledge and they really appreciate the knowledge of local local areas and local leaders as well and you know just exactly what you're saying there about the role think tanks play this is why i wanted to have you on here and hopefully some other think tank leaders as well just so that people can understand the really important role that think tanks play 
political party manifestos don't just pop out of thin air. You know, they don't start writing it two weeks before the election, before it's published. You know, it's it's this constant thought process and influencing from a whole range of think tanks that works its way in into the mixer. And I think it's important that civil servants and you know even uh, local public servants really understand that. So so that's health. We talked about health. What else is on your list? Uh, so, as I mentioned, machinery of government, um, and by that we are focusing predominantly on kind of Whitehall machinery of government. Um, but I think, oh, I suppose, one of the principles, one of the questions we're bringing to that program of work, and I'll, I'll, I'll touch on some of the questions we want we want to answer in it, but is a view linking to that health conversation we've just had, which is that. We're a very centralised. I mean, everybody will know this. We, you know, it comes comes up as sort of uh, uh, you know several things in policy that come up on a sort of yearly basis where we all say, "Gosh, shouldn't we question this?" And then you know we get to the next year and say, "Gosh, shouldn't we question it again?" Um, but part of what we want to, why we want to look at Whitehall and the centre is actually because we think far too much is done in Whitehall and the centre. Um, but some of the things we want to look at, so so the health thing is a big kind of blue sky, uh, as I like to say, blue sky with a blueprint, but kind of blue sky, how would you maximise health, big picture, let's kind of, you know, rethink the whole, reimagine the whole approach. What we want to do with our, our programme of work on machinery of government is to take quite specific questions um, and, and look at those in, individually. So one of the questions we would like to look at, um, because it's always a big thing that comes up, uh, and if we, and we're going to have to be much more innovative in the future, uh, is this question of risk and the fact that one of the criticisms and certainly my experience in government uh, and certainly talking to lots of people I, I think is true is that the civil service isn't always great at understanding and then living with risk or accepting risk and yeah. you know there was an interesting if your listeners haven't heard Kate Bingham's um, Oxford lecture uh, Kate Bingham oh, who's fantastic who uh, to- I, exactly vaccines really Honestly, it is so worth your time. Whack it on while you're, you know, cooking dinner or going for a cycle or whatever. So just for everyone listening, Kit Bingham led the vaccine vaccine task task force. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, And she talks about about lots and lots of things, which I I won't mention all of them, though I think it's a great kind of um, immersion in some of the challenges with civil service and what civil service reform needs to look like. But she specifically talks about risk and the fact that Civil servants on the whole think about short term risks. So what will be the risk to the department, often the reputation, even me individually, um, about doing something differently, kind of innovating, taking that risk? And they will often conclude that actually the short term risk is too great and therefore they won't. But what they're not factoring is is the long term risk of not taking action and not kind of accepting that, yes, failure might happen, but if we do nothing, then actually things are going to be a whole lot worse. And I think health and social care are great examples of that. You know, the risk hasn't been taken and we're sitting here now today going, oh, my gosh, these systems are not sustainable. They're not delivering the outcomes we want. So we want to look at what does it actually mean to understand and then take risk and how would you approach uh, embedding that? Because I think that's key to then an innovation mindset, which is what is needed uh, in Whitehall. So we look at that long term thinking, you know, long term policymaking. I mean, goodness me, uh, if there was one area that we really need to tackle, yeah, I was asked a while back on something, what, what, what do you think, you know, how, how do you think we're doing on public service reform? And I just said, we're not doing public research service reform, because actually, if you were really doing public service reform, you'd be thinking about what do we need to do for 50 years out? You know, what are the trends? What are the risks? What are the threats? Kind of what are the opportunities that we face? But the whole system is built for I want to announce something, you know, a minister wants to announce something to look like they're doing something, you know, next month or there's this crisis that's just come up or, you know, and you're you're rewarded and you spend your time on doing these short term fixes and ideas. So what are the institutions? What's the infrastructure? What's the approach? What's the skills you need to do to embed long term horizon scanning and thinking and policy development in central government and then things like how do you achieve cognitive diversity you know a classic question and I and I specifically say cognitive diversity because actually um, I think if you look at how we ended up where we were 
not very ready for a pandemic was because we had so much groupthink um, going on and people hadn't questioned. So actually, how do you uh, enable much more cognitive diversity? How do you create those challenging conversations in government? Um, And then things like how do you improve accountability in government um, on the official side as well as the ministerial side? And both how do you design the centre, but also what should sit at the centre and more importantly, what really shouldn't sit at the centre, both in terms of delivery and decision making. Those are all fascinating points and I agree with all of them. And I think what's really interesting here is that not once have you talked about the size of the state or anything like that. That's you're actually what you're really passionate about is having the state and government to be as good as it can possibly be and to be really innovative, really kind of stretching. And it, it's frustrating, actually, but I can understand exactly how it happens. But there is a risk aversion within government because we're talking about, you know, this is taxpayers' money. It's also a huge machine. And for individuals to take risk, you know, if that if that doesn't work. But, you know, in venture capital, there's this idea called the power law where you invest in 10 really innovative ideas and you know that only one of them will probably work, but it will work big. And there's just there's nothing that, that like that. So it, it just feels to me like it always ends up like public services end up being the laggards of innovation that they kind of pick up like artificial intelligence, for instance, you know, is being used everywhere. Um, it's being really resisted in public services. Now, there are good reasons around bias and things around that, but surely there should be more of an embracing of what the world around us is is experimenting with in order that public services can be as good as they they can be and, and government can be as good as it can be. So I think I'm wholeheartedly agreeing with everything you're <laughs> saying there. And, and I think just sorry, just on that point, because I think it's such a tremendously important point, because um, if you're going to do long term thinking and you're going to come up with quite radical, bold ideas that are going to have a profound impact and change things significantly, you have to build consensus. And so, the you know, I don't think the question ever is what size should the state should be? Because it's a bit like saying, you know, how long is a piece of string? Well, what do you want it to do? <laughs> you know, kind of yeah. how do you want it to do it? And et cetera. But actually, you also then get into quite an ideological discussion. And think tanks shouldn't be ideological. You know, they should be about what are the outcomes you're trying to achieve? And what is the best evidence we've got to get you to those outcomes? And I guess the bit that we're interested in, which has an impact on the size of the state, is that, you can think that the state has, you know, you, you could set out certain key priorities uh, or objectives that the state has. That doesn't necessarily mean you think the state should deliver those things. And I think we still very much have, and partly why we want to do the work on health, but we still very much have this this post-war settlement. You know, most of our human services were designed 75 years ago for problems and challenges that just just are not the problems and challenges we have today. But what it also post-war, we, you know, that was a kind of paradigm shift moment where we saw the state get much more involved, much more active in every aspect of people's lives. Um, and it squeezed out the market uh, and private businesses and the role that they can play, uh, which was then corrected. Some people might argue overcorrected, but corrected under Thatcher. But the one area we haven't gone back to saying is, but what about civic society what about communities themselves what about citizens and the roles they can play and whereas pre that post-war settlement the state was not active enough but what we did have was quite a flourishing community uh civic society uh infrastructure and so i think what we have to do as part of this conversation about what is the role of the shape what is the role of the and shape sorry of the state today we have to have that conversation in the context of how do we refound kind of the sort of community infrastructure that we previously had in an inclusive way, you know, in a way that actually it, it kind of works for people and doesn't feel oppressive or kind of judgmental or anything like that? And how do we make sure that the market is functioning in a way that that is um, creating good jobs and, and isn't, you know, kind of uh, having negative impacts on people? So I think we have to think of those things as a balancing act between those three pillars, rather than having a conversation about the state in isolation. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And I'm particularly looking forward to seeing what reform comes out with 
around communities because I know that you've recently recruited Simon Kay, who yes. has been on the podcast as well, and he is a, a fantastic brain and I think the two of you will work incredibly well together. I must um I must just name check one particular program which I think is really good. It's the Department for Education, Innovation and Children's Social Care Program, which we we've worked with actually and that was I think that's the best example of people, public service, innovation, support from central government that I've certainly seen. So it was a very large multiple hundreds of millions of pounds fund within the DfE that councils could come up with ideas that they wanted to try around around children's social care and you know partners were involved, some of the big children's charities and things. And they they essentially pitched not quite lions or uh, dragons then, sorry, but not not far off. Um, saying this is our idea we'd like some funding to experiment in working in this different way and the department then funded it and that's been going for a number of years now and and it's having you know a pretty big impact and then the purpose of the program is that the stuff that works because not everything works the stuff that works is codified and shared that everybody can then pick it up so there are pockets of of examples and enthusiasm for for that that type of working. I just want to move us on now to talk about engaging and influencing, which is a think tank. If you're not doing that, then you're just talking to yourself. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So how do you engage with the wider world? And I'm thinking particularly about some of our listeners who are working within the public sector, designing and implementing and delivering public services. So we're really fortunate and, you know, working in a think tank is think tank is such a privileged position because it's fairly rare, not entirely, but fairly rare that uh, we would ever reach out to someone that could be someone working, you know, in a hospital trust. It could be someone, uh, you know, working in a school. It could be someone working in Whitehall. We we very rarely find that we reach out to people and they say, I don't want to talk to you because actually Mm. it's sort of to your point earlier about the fact that there is lots of stuff going on you know most people want to be able to contribute to the broader policy discussion not least because they're the recipients of whatever policy decisions are made in their working lives and so how do we do it um we at every stage of our our research process uh we we reach out to as many people as we possibly can so um for example uh one of our recent publications was on um young people and mental health with a particular focus on schools and the role schools can play in in supporting young people's mental health uh, and so we reached out to schools that had the government's mental health support teams operating in them uh, so spoke to teachers that were were working with those with that program uh, we spoke to people in the department for education about the program and kind of what they were trying to achieve we spoke to the people in uh department for health about their aspect of it we spoke to charities that were supporting young people with mental and doing innovative things with kind of mental health stuff um and we spoke to politicians with an interest in the topic uh and we try and do it as we shape our program so the health work we're doing we've already started doing that andrew you were one of the people that we were delighted to be able to to talk to to feed in um but again we we identify people we think will will have a really kind of insightful perspective doesn't mean they agree with us that's absolutely not a criteria in fact we'd rather have people challenging us um we reach out to them to shape that piece of research to make sure we understand the challenge and the problem in the first place um and to work out how to frame it and how to think about it and where we should focus and prioritize our our efforts um we then do as part of the research process as you'd expect uh kind of semi-structured interviews and again that will often be with civil servants um uh, public sector professionals and practitioners, etc. Um, and then we also get uh, all our work uh, externally reviewed, and that would normally include, again, depending on what the subject is, either someone from central or local government or one of the, the public services. Um, but beyond that, we also do an awful lot of events, um, many of which will be kind of small roundtables where we're trying to kind of you know, grapple with a particular topic. And so, again, we've got, we, in fact, we've got one coming up with um, uh, the new efficiency minister, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Uh, we, are, we are talking value for money. Uh, so there are people talking about value for money. Uh, we're doing that in a couple of weeks' time. And we've got representatives from Bayes, uh, Treasury, kind I'm of. Sure that'll be, I'm sure that'll be entertaining. No, it's interesting that you've got representatives from the departments because I, I would have I just had it in my head that it would have been quite difficult for them to 
to come to the think tank events and things like that. But it's good that they do. I think so. I think there's two things um, on that. So uh, firstly, we're really, you know, one of our USPs, one of the things that's, I guess, kind of dearest to our, uh, our, our kind of mission is that we're cross party and we're very explicitly cross party. Um, so actually, you know, we say we're fiercely independent and cross party. And so if you look at our advisory board, for example, um, yes. we've got both conservative and Labour, either current or, or former politicians on that. It's chaired by Nikki Morgan, obviously conservative, but we've got Caroline Flint, we've got Meg Hillier on there from Labour, you know, so it's really important to us that we're engaging. And again, coming back to, to the point earlier, um, you're not going to get deep radical change unless you build consensus uh, across the parties. Yeah. I don't mean bringing everyone on board because you're never going to get every, everyone to agree, but it can't be a conservative or a Labour or a you know Lib Dem or whatever um, approach. So I think that helps because, as you're alluding to, civil servants need to be neutral. Um, yeah. Uh, so that helps. But also our discussions are about policy. They're not about politics. They're about how you, you know, how do you achieve greater efficiency in public services? Well, every civil servant should have an interest in that. Um, in the same way, you know, we've got a, another event coming up about how you can how we can use data more effectively um, in public health. And again, we'll have people from um you know, working in the NHS on the front line as well as kind of civil servants from DH talking about that because People people want to solve these these questions. And so I think, yeah, I think there's a willingness to engage. And look, our, our work would be would be both far worse if we didn't get their engagement, because obviously we need their insight and their expertise and their ideas. But also, as, again, as you said, it would be pointless because we wouldn't be influencing. We wouldn't be bringing people with us as we I were doing. Think, I think I, I think that's fantastic. I'm really glad to hear you say all of that. And it struck me as you were talking there that. We've been talking about devolution and increased devolution, and this seems to be a, an, an agenda item for for this government. And think tanks are so important, actually, because where are these devolved areas going to get their ideas from, if not from organisations like yours? You know, a lot of the stuff that you're talking about in the right conditions could could be piloted much more locally or regionally. Hundred combined authority or something. Yeah, that's exactly right, and. Um, you know, we so historically for reform, it has been a think tank very focused on the centre. Um, but one of the things that we're really keen to do now, and you mentioned bringing in Simon Kay from New Local, who's who's you know been working with local government for a long time now and is very passionate about it. Um, but also just if you're thinking about the long term challenges and you're not thinking about how do I tweak this particular aspect of the NHS or of, you know, the Home Office or whatever, you're thinking about profound change. You, you just you just can't have that conversation if you're not talking about local areas for all the reasons we discussed. And so um, so we're really keen to engage with local government, um, both, as you say, because ultimately, where do people live, right? They don't live in, in Whitehall, you know, exactly. they, they live in those areas. So any policy decision is going to eventually, we would like it to start closer to those people, but, but ultimately it's going to impact those people. So you have to have local government involved and, and local services involved. I'm so pleased to hear you say that. One of our things at Mutual Ventures that we feel we do really well is act as the bridge between central government and local. So quite often we will be commissioned to deliver a large central government program like the innovation program I talked about. It's funded centrally, but very much delivered locally. And actually just being able to translate between the two, between central government policymaking and local implementation is, is, is really important. So just sticking with civil servants and public servants more broadly, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what the right way to ask this question is, but um, how should they... So how should they be interpreting what this government is trying to achieve? Well, um, uh, I will I will give it a, a delicate answer, um, but actually a, a serious answer as well, which is that I think it's actually pretty clear what the government wants to achieve at a very high level. So take levelling up. I mean, net zero also another great example. And both of those will ultimately need local people, local government, uh, as well as central government um, involved in, in, in trying to solve those. So I think the vision of, you know, a more geographically equal country kind of, you know, 
strengthening local economies, spreading opportunity, these kind of terms that we've and reaching hitting net zero, um, tackling climate change. I think these are things that we we know they want to do. I think where the opportunity lies, and that's probably a slightly different question I'm answering um, uh, than kind of interpreting. But I think where the opportunity lies for public servants, um, wherever they sit in the, the kind of ecosystem, is actually that it still feels like there's quite a lot of work left to do to work out how you do those things. Yes. Um, and so I think there's a real opportunity to say, OK, so we know what the things are that's important to this government. But how do you actually achieve that? And, and it's, you know, yes, with levelling up, we can talk to a blue in the face about the fact that we, of course, we need better infrastructure. You know, we need better roads and broadband and all that good stuff. Right. Of course we do. Uh, and we all know the productivity links uh, of those things. But actually, how do you achieve better social infrastructure? You know, how do you strengthen communities? How do you make sure that people have a sense of pride in where they live? You yeah. know, how do you support families? And I don't think we are at a point yet where the government has a clear plan. I thought the levelling up white paper was actually a really good white paper as a sort of programme for government in a quite grand sense. But the granular set, the granular policy ideas, I think, are still very much up to gra- up for grabs. And I think that's where there's this huge opportunity for people who are working in those areas, kind of have ideas, want to test things, could go to government and say, we think this might work. We'd really like to test it in our area or actually you know, the devolution deals. We think the devolution deals should look like this because actually we think there's a real potential to hit your objectives by having a deal that looks in this way. So I think perhaps I'm, I'm, I'm not really answering the interpreting, but I think the opportunity is quite big. Yeah, I think you're right. And just it strikes me, especially just reflecting on what you were saying about thinking long term, that actually it's the local areas, it's the councils, it's the devolved administrations, it's the combined authorities who are probably going to have a better shot at really thinking long term. And I think this is unfortunately baked into our political system now, the new cycle, everything. I think it's really difficult for a national government to think long term in a way that a local council or a devolved administration that's not in the news every day, that, that they can think that way. So I think you're going to find a lot of your best ideas are, are going to be of great interest to those local areas as well. And uh, yeah, I, I can't wait to see what else you come out with. Um, just as a final question, Charlie. So with your think tank leader hat on and that, that kind of enthusiasm for people to be radical and think long term and things. So what, what bit of advice would you give to, to someone working in the civil service or in the wider public sector or in a charity or a social enterprise who wants to make an impact in the long term, especially given the environment that they have to operate in, which can be quite short term. Maybe that's a really difficult question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. It's a difficult question. Uh, and I imagine if I had an answer to that, I'd probably be a very wealthy consultant at this point. Okay. <laughs> I think, I mean, what's, what's generally the advice I would give if you want to be thinking long term? I mean, on the, on the most practical and perhaps dull uh, sense is you actually have to carve out time to do it. And yeah. and that's yeah. just not happening. And, and that may sound like a kind of really dud answer. But um, but, you know, it's like any of us in our lives. You do the urgent. You do the thing that's kind of popped up you do, and you never quite get round to that long term thinking. And you, I think you just try and get in the diary of a senior person in the public sector. And, you know, everything is a meeting. Yeah. And I think if those senior people actually and, you know, and, and having spent time as a, a, a an advisor, um, I know just how many meetings get put into your diary. But I think if you actually sat there and looked through it and said, do I actually need to do a meeting for that? Do I actually need to join that meeting? I think you could probably carve out a decent chunk of time each month to do some of this longer term thinking. So I think yeah. there's a practical answer to it. But I think the. The more sort of philosophical, if I can put it that way, answer is you have to be willing to question. And what I mean by that is not accepting, well, this is how the system works or, well, this is how we've always done it. Or, well, but, you know, it is the NHS that does health, for example. I think you have to be willing to come to it with no preconceived ideas or dogma or ideology. You have to be willing to come and say, 
okay, so I've got this problem and I and I I've got a sense of where that trend data is going forward into the future. And what would it be if the system didn't exist today? What would I create? And I'm not saying you could then create that new system um, because there's a whole heap of things you'd have to go through in terms of transitioning. But if you want to think long term, you have to be willing to question things, even if it seems a bit slaying of sacred cows in doing so to do it. No, I think that's fantastic. And that bit of practical advice about being ruthless, about about carving out some time, I think is is incredibly useful. Charlie, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. So a huge thank you for your time. I've loved it. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Well, that was really interesting. There's a few points I'd like to highlight. The first is Charlie's point about how think tanks should be about outcomes, not ideology. And I think by and large, the ones I know and speak to, that's very much the case. The conversation we had about health and care devolution will be really stretching, I think, for some for some listeners in central government and in the NHS as well. We talked about the possibility of a postcode lottery, but I think Charlie's point about how actually you need to flip that on its head and embrace and celebrate the fact that each individual locality doesn't always need the same thing. So variety and having variation in what services are provided in order to help a local community and population achieve the best health outcomes it can does not actually mean that everybody gets exactly the same thing. So I thought that was that was a really interesting and challenging point. I also very much enjoyed the part of the conversation where we talked about local areas being the test bed for new ideas. And this is very much linked to the discussion we had about local areas being more capable and more equipped to think long term potentially than central government. So with more devolution and with more powers being held locally, then it just follows that think tanks should really be directing a lot of their new ideas towards devolved administrations, councils with increased power, as they will be able to test things on a local scale. And then if they work, then the rest can learn. I think Charlie's point about the levelling up white paper being a framework and the fact that there is a lot of work to do off the back of it was spot on. So the levelling up white paper is very good at setting out the challenges we face as a country and also the strategic ambition that the government has. But there is quite a big gap in the middle where we will need central government civil servants putting their thinking caps on and coming up with additional white papers and policy thinking to actually deliver some of these outcomes. So real work to do there and very exciting work as well. And then finally, Charlie's point about being ready to carve out time to do the long term thinking. I love that point and it's something I don't do enough of myself. So I certainly will be taking the advice that Charlie has given us there. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks to Charlie. And as usual, don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter or register on the website so you never miss a future episode.